right, you ready for my dramatic recitation? All right. You've, you don't look. You don't look ready. They say that life is generous. Life is generous. Spin faster. Spin faster. The world is full. The world is full. Blind your eyes. Blind your eyes. And they'll tell you black. They'll tell you white. The moon is just the sun. The moon is nice. It's wet. It's wet. It's wet. Is that good? Are you happy with it? <laughs>to Heavy Metal 101. John, I can't believe how much great freaking music came out in the year of our Lord, 1980. Has there ever been a more exciting episode ever? Today, we have the particularly warm, cozy joy of revisiting some of our beloved old friends from season number one. Such a delight, no? Yay. <laughs> Thank you for matching my energy and enthusiasm with your, your easy charisma. Happy to serve. <laughs> so this episode, it just kept expanding on me. So at first, I was just thinking we would compare and contrast Black Sabbath's magnificent Heaven and Hell with Ozzy Osbourne's titanic solo debut, Blizzard of Oz. And then I thought to myself, self, what about Motorhead in 1980? If you're revisiting season number one bands with massive important albums in 1980, there is no way you could skip Ace of Spades, you big dummy. So as you see, I'm very hard on myself in my interior monologues. Yet somehow you survive. <laughs> I mean, I like myself. That must be nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good thing. I felt good about all that, but then something just kept nagging at me. And that was something that was called British Steel, which... Spoiler alert, it's actually not my own favorite Judas Priest album. Did you even know that that was a Judas Priest album? No, I thought that was like a genre. <sighs> All right. However, it is such an important part of the story of 70s metal masters in the year 1980 that there was just no way I could bring myself to skip it. I care too deeply, John. That, I believe, is my deepest flaw, no? You keep believing that. <laughs> you see why I like myself so much. Is that what it is? <laughs> my deepest flaw is love. It's just love. As such, this episode is going to end up as a two-parter. Yowza! I don't think that we've done that yet, so we're breaking new ground here. Is that exciting or what? Okay. <laughs> it means that you, you you get to rest before you hear about the second half. So, I was, I was, so far, I'm very confused because <laughs> everything you've talked about seems to bear little relationship to what you told me to listen to. That's true. For <laughs> It. You've listened to half of the music, so you're going to get to reconvene with your Spotify playlist number two. Uh, and then, then wait we'll... for all the music you've said you don't actually like. No, I like all the music. I just don't. Uh, shut up. <laughs> you just don't shut up. like this music that we're going to talk about next time? I like, yes, I like the <laughs> music. I do, I do. I love Ace of Spades. It's incredible. I'm British I Steel. actually, is that an album or a song? It's an album and a song. Okay. And it's I a know good, the song. Yeah, I bet you you do know the song. It's a classic. British Steel has some amazing stuff on it. It's just, as I said, it's not my favorite Judas Priest album, but it's their most famous album. So it's complicated. There's the contrarian coming out. I know. I'm not a populist, you see. I'm an anarchist. Is that, what it is? is that what this is? That's what it is. Okay. Look, we've got much business to attend to, but first off, did you enjoy the sampler playlist that I did make for you, which featured the excerpts from Black Sabbath's Heaven and Hell and from Ozzy Osbourne's Blizzard of Oz? I didn't hate it. That's uh, not inspirational, but no, better than this, nothing. No, this music didn't speak to me. Okay. I'll just be brutally honest. I uh, didn't care for this So music. unlike the Iron Maiden debut, you were not bowled over with ecstasy. No. Okay. Well, it happens. Anyone who is interested in heavy metal really needs to sit down and give each of these albums a truly careful listen, or ten. But John, who cares about nothing, <laughs> is getting away with just this truncated sampler pack, these two playlists, one featuring Kevin and Helen Blizzard of Oz, and a second featuring British Steel and Ace of Spades, which he has not yet gotten to, but which may, in fact, bowl him over with ecstasy. We don't, we don't know, right? And you like Judas Priest in your... That's Christmas true. Christmas. Yeah, That's and, true. You, and you like there's, ACDC. There's cautious reason to be optimistic going into the next episode. I would describe British Steel as Judas Priest's most ACDC-esque album. All right, that's a lot of mental gymnastics, but okay. 
All right, well, we'll have to see. So let's just jump on in. We're going to tackle these albums in the same order in which we discuss the bands in season number one. So on this episode, we're going to hit Sabbath and Ozzy, and then that next episode, we'll talk about Judas Priest, and then end with John's very favorite band of all, the Godfathers of Thrash, Motorhead. Lemmy! Oh, is that him? Yeah, that's Lemmy. I've already forgotten. Oh, fuck you. Uh... <laughs> On our previous episode, we begun to explore the musical sea change that was 1980 through the lens of the coolest new kids on the block, Iron Maiden. Maiden were playing an updated version of the traditional strain of heavy metal founded by the mighty Black Sabbath on February 13, 1970. But 10 years later, Black Sabbath were most assuredly not resting on their laurels. John, it's been a while since our 70s Sabbath season finale spectacular. But do you remember what particularly important incident happened in 1979 following Sabbath's tour for the album Never Say Die? No. Ah, that sounds right. I want mm -hmm. you to know mm -hmm. that I genuinely did just try and remember, but I do not. I saw, I saw the hamster wheel <laughs> yeah. and all that stuff. Um, all right, so here's what happened. Sabbath toured Never Say Die from May through December of 1978. Following a brief break, the band headed to Los Angeles to begin working on their next album. Legend has it that right in the midst of this writing process, a constantly drugged out and distracted Ozzy Osbourne just completely disappeared for six weeks. No one in the band knew where the hell he was, and we can probably agree that this is less than ideal, no? Sure, yeah. You I know, mean, you're writing music, yeah, it's just problematic. Yeah, yeah. And so, as a result of his being even more of a drug-addled mess than the rest of the band, who were not sober, Ozzy Osbourne was officially fired from Black Sabbath on April 27th, 1979. So that's the important oh, incident. Yes. Okay. There you go. All right, so John, could you read us the following Tony Iommi quote, preferably in your best Brummy accent? I don't know what that means. That's an accent uh, from Birmingham in, in England. No. Okay. We just couldn't continue with Ozzy. As much as everyone wanted us to, we just couldn't do it. Nothing was happening, and it would have meant the end of the band. We didn't want to fire him, but we had to if we wanted to continue. Uh, Very apologetic. Yeah, uh, <laughs> wait till you see the Ozzy quotes by comparison. Uh, yeah, I think he felt genuinely bad. I don't think anyone wanted to fire Ozzy, but he just was not functional. He was not a functional member of the human race in this period. Who is? <laughs> it's a fair point. I mean, I assume I'm going to have to fire you very soon. Any minute. Any minute. <laughs> very similar circumstances. <laughs> As such, we have two narrative threads we're going to need to pick up this episode. Number one, what happened next with Black Sabbath? And number two, how did the opening salvo of Ozzy's epoch-defining solo career come about? We're going to begin with the story of Heaven and Hell and the creation of a sort of neon Sabbath for this new era. Interestingly, it was Sharon Arden, who was the daughter of Sabbath's then-manager Don Arden, who originally introduced Tony Iommi and Ronnie James Dio at a party at her father's house. Now, John, you might not be familiar with the name Sharon Arden, but perhaps you know her by her married name, Sharon Osborne. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know who that is? Mm-hmm. I assume that you're a big fan of the uh, daytime talk show, The Talk? Uh, yeah. That's, you know. Are you being sarcastic? Me? <laughs> I could see you sitting around eating cereal and watching The Talk. You run my schedule. <laughs> I do. You know when I'm uh, at work. I don't, I don't allow you that sort of flexibility. That's sad. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if you weren't so busy with this damn podcast, you'd have time to watch The Talk. We could stop. <laughs> no, we can't. <laughs> Anyhow, thus began the conversation that would eventually lead to Ronnie James Dio stepping in as Sabbath's new singer. We talked a bit about Dio last season. John, I think I know the answer to this question because we talked about it in the car on the mm -hmm, way here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you remember what important band Dio was singing for in the latter part of the 1970s? We talked about them. Yeah, I know. I'm trying to remember the bands we talked about. Imagine a sky after a rainstorm. And the sun has come out. And you see a... Rainbow? Yay! With Richie Blackmore from Deep Purple. So let's look at all these connections. We got Deep Purple. We got Ronnie James Dio and Rainbow. We got Black Sabbath. They're all coming together. All right. Great. Mm -hmm. Keep spinning that web. Oh, that's like very, it's a tangled web. 
All right, so the great icon, Ronnie James Dio, rest in power, Ronnie, was actually a few years older than the other Sabbath dudes, having been born way back in 1942 in the great U.S. of A. in the state of New Hampshire. You been to New Hampshire? I've driven through New Hampshire. It's pretty, it's a nice state. His professional singing career stretches as far back as 1958 with the band Ronnie and the Redcaps, who eventually released some delightfully period singles, which all Dio fans should probably peruse at some point. Nice, like, 50s pop music, like doo-wop. Dio eventually released three albums with the band Elf. You might remember us talking about Elf briefly. Not a crucial band. This was an early 70s Dio project, a sort of blues rock thing, not really heavy metal at all. This was prior to his time in Rainbow, for which he also lasted three albums until he left in 1979 to begin his tenure as the singer of Black Sabbath. So we've got a supremely qualified, brilliant replacement for Ozzy, but there was still some turbulence ahead. Only shortly after Dio joined the band, our beloved bassist, Geezer Butler, his marriage was in the process of falling apart, and he decided he needed to step away from the group to deal with those issues, which I think is fairly mature. All right. Yeah. This led to an assortment of bass-related craziness. Okay, so there's going to be a quiz after this. you got to pay careful attention. First off, Ronnie James Dio, who actually was previously a bassist, he did double duty as singer and as Butler's replacement. Next, a multi-instrumentalist named Jeff Nichols, late of the Nawabum band Quartz, was brought in as, as a temporary fix on bass. He was never meant to be the permanent replacement for Geezer Butler, but he did replace Dio, which was certainly not a permanent fix. It was the lineup that had Nichols on bass, which created the seminal masterpiece of this new Sabbath era, the track Heaven and Hell, which we'll get back to momentarily. So Nichols, who was intended as a temporary fix, stayed on with the band at keyboards, but he was replaced at bass by former Elf and Rainbow bassist Craig Gruber, who Dio had brought in. So, you think you're done. There is so much damn bass upheaval, but we're not quite done yet. It was this lineup, Iommi on guitar, Dio singing, the great Bill Ward on drums, classic Sabbath drummer, and Craig Gruber on bass, and also Jeff Nichols is an unofficial member at the keyboards. This is the group that began the process of recording Heaven and Hell. However, at the very last minute, actually, possibly after the last minute, because they were already two weeks into their recording session, Geezer Butler called and asked to return to the band. So poor Craig Gruber stepped aside, and that's just kind of what you do when Geezer Butler wants back in Black Sabbath, and the Heaven and Hell lineup was now really and truly finalized. Did you get all that? Eric, I was reading that along with you, and I still <laughs> don't quite understand what the hell just happened. <laughs> is the is the takeaway that Geezer left, and then by the time it mattered, he was back? Yeah, that's I'd say that's the takeaway. Great. All right, you have passed the quiz. Good for you. Thank you. <laughs> now, it is a little bit more sort of confusing and sorted than that, because Gruber had already recorded some amount of bass parts by the time Butler came back into the band, and these were apparently all re-recorded by Geezer Butler. There's some controversy over whether he ever heard those, or whether he simply wrote his own bass parts. Who knows? I don't. I don't either. It is also worth noting that it was Craig Gruber who contributed the excellent song Die Young to the band. I believe that was on your playlist. Do you remember that one? No. Uh, good, good. Did we just listen to it in the we car did right not. over here? We did not. I confessed before we got in the car that I had already forgotten everything on that playlist. You're such a great partner. I do what I can. I'm in my defense, I listened to it when you sent it to me several months ago <laughs> when I thought we would be recording this, not now. You gotta, you gotta be fleet-footed to uh, keep up with this podcast. Is that the word? I feel like you gotta be rather sedentary to keep up with this podcast. <laughs> a little bit of both. <laughs> really fast, really fast, and then nothing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so here's where it gets a little dark. Alas, neither Gruber nor Nichols were credited for any of their compositional work for Heaven and Hell. All the writing credits for the album are listed as Iommi, Dio, Butler, Ward. Black Sabbath have always been really shitty about writing credits. For the record, I'd like to now provide my co-host John with credit for his invaluable contributions to our podcast. Because that's how we roll here at Heavy Metal 101. Consider yourself credited. Was I not before?
Oh no, this is the first time I've ever mentioned you. Oh, hi everyone, I'm John. <laughs> I normally I normally edit you out of the podcast completely. Could be, could be. <laughs> Alright, so let's briefly explore this amazing album. We begin with some assigned listening. Let's get the sound of this new Sabbath for this new decade into our brains and ears. There are a number of stone classics on this album, but nothing quite expresses the glory of this era of Sabbath like the epic title track. So now is your opportunity to pause the podcast and click the link in the show notes to revel in not just heaven and not just hell, but heaven and hell. Sing us a song, Ronnie. You're the singer. I have a transition. I, I get that swipe. joke. Yeah, you do. That's awesome. Uh, and then we're back in. John, how fucking great is this song? You really like it. Oh, I love this song. You don't love this song, do you? I don't. It's really, as a bass player, this song offends me on a, a, at a core level. Now, so, all right. Uh, you remember, and this is a question, not a statement, you remember how great Geezer Butler is as a bassist, no? Uh, I, I mean... Really busy, complicated, sort yeah. of... Brand, like, Butler and Ward really lay out these rich, complicated grooves, and then you have these Titanic Iomi riffs, and Ozzy, used to be Ozzy, singing pretty straight-ahead melodies. Yeah, I mean, that sounds vaguely familiar. Well, we don't get that on this particular no, track. you sure don't. Well, and that's because it was, it was not... Geezer Butler, who wrote the baseline to this. Okay. And, and, I'm, it was and, I'm, Jeff Nichols. and I'm not mad at Geezer Butler. Yeah. You still like Geezer? Well, yeah. Okay. The, the fact stands that that baseline is like almost as bad as Bolero. It is Bolero esque. Yes. I would say. And guess what? People love Bolero. Yeah. Well, people are fucking morons. <laughs> I like Heaven and Hell a shit ton more than I like Bolero. I will be honest with you. And I love I mean, I mean, I would probably agree with that statement, too, because Bolero is the single worst piece of music ever to be written by any human at any moment in time. And I also like Ravel. Mm-hmm. All right. So, uh, Heaven and Hell, yes. Bolero, no? Uh, I mean, both no's. But in the scale of no, more no to Bolero than to Heaven and Hell. All right. There you have it, folks. <laughs> a succinct analysis, courtesy of John and Eric. Right. Tune in next week for <laughs> Ace of Spades. That's going to get fucking ugly. All right. We're not going to go into too terribly much detail here. As we've got a lot What's of things to say. to get to? For seven minutes? Well, there's other things going on. I don't think so. That's all I heard. An amazing riff. A beautiful melody. A piano, man. Did I just ruin it for you? <laughs> you Please tell me I just ruined the whole song for you. <laughs> you did a little emotional damage to me, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Look, the major thing we need to keep track of here is that Black Sabbath had released Technical Ecstasy and Never Say Die, which are both roundly mediocre albums at the end of the 70s. They lost their uber-iconic lead singer Ozzy Osbourne, and they came back with this album that is a total masterpiece, and this title track, which is, whether you love it or not, super iconic, very beloved, really showed that the band was alive and well and ready for a whole new decade of amazingness. Unfortunately, it worked out to more like three years of amazingness, but that's another story. So, you know, on this song, you've got an amazing riff, as I mentioned, You've got a rock-solid bass line composed by Jeff Nichols. It's not Geezer Butler. It's not musically interesting, but it holds the center. You've also got an amazing... I'm going to quibble with that. It doesn't even do that. It kind of, like, drags. It is terrible. All right, John does not like the bass line to Heaven and Hell. Well, all right, now, we were talking about this in the car. There is an absolutely iconic Ronnie James Dio lyric to this song. Now, I don't know if you remember this. It was actually Geezer Butler who used to do all of the lyric, or almost all of the lyric writing for Sabbath Mm -hmm. during Ozzy's time. Mm -hmm. So, big change here with Ronnie James Dio taking over. This particular lyric focuses on what will be one of the main sort of themes of Ronnie James Dio's writing career, and that is contradictions and sort of an us-against-them mentality, which is really great for us metalheads because we always feel very put upon and like the world is against us. But, Ronnie, he's got our back. John, could we have a recitation of the opening stanzas 
of this song. <laughs> I almost did it to the piano man melody just to piss you off. <laughs> I hate you so much. <sighs> Sing me a song, you're a singer. Do me a wrong, you're a bringer of evil. Contradictions. How is that a contradiction? You're the singer, you, but then you do me a wrong because you're bringing evil. How is that a contradiction? It's Why can't singers be evil? Singers are joyful. Have you talked to singers? Of the two of us, one of us spends way more time with singers than the other. So this is not <laughs> an inherent contradiction. Okay, all right, I'll buy that. Well, continue, please. The devil is never a maker. The less that you give, you're a taker. It just it feels like I'm having a struggle. <laughs> so it's on and on and on. It's heaven and hell. Oh well. The lover of life's not a sinner. The ending is just a beginning. That's a contradiction. Is these kind? Of, yeah, I'm right. It's just they're just opposites. He's just listing opposites. This is like kindergarten, like picture identification. The closer you get to the meaning, the sooner you'll know that you're dreaming. So it's on and on and on. Oh, it's on and on and on. It goes on and on and on. Heaven and hell. I can tell. Fool, fool. Fool! He sings fool a lot in this song. So I opened up the episode with my own dramatic recitation of the fast bit towards the end, which I've already told you is like my favorite part of any song ever. Just in general, I think the lyrics to this song are very effective. John, on the other hand, feels like he's having a stroke when he recites them. Is that is that accurate? I, that is, it does sort of feel like my IQ has taken a hit. <laughs> and I don't consider myself to be a terribly intelligent individual. Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna support that. I Thank think you. you I think you know yourself. <laughs> anyway, regardless, my main takeaway from this is that the world is a messed up place full of messed up people. But us metalheads, we're all in it together, and we've got Ronnie D on our side. That's my takeaway, and you can't take that away from me. I won't even try. I appreciate that. All right. So before we move on, just a couple of fast facts about this album. Heaven and Hell was primarily recorded in late 1979 at Criteria Studios in Miami, the very same studio where Sabbath had recorded the not-great Technical Ecstasy back in 1976. However, they wrote and recorded the opening track, Neon Nights, a little bit later at Studio Ferber in Paris. That was the last thing they recorded for the album. John, I opened your playlist up with that one, which we did just listen to in the car. How did you like Neon Nights? It was fine. It's fast and exciting. Sure. Yeah. It, I mean, it is notably more, like, aggressive's not the right word, Drive, driving okay. than, than other Sabbath that we've listened yeah, to. Yeah, it's a fast, exciting celebration. It's a fine opening track. Yeah, I think it's amazing. I also think it's wholly indicative of a new sound for a new Sabbath. Neon Nights was actually written very much in a paranoid-type situation. So like Paranoid, they went into the studio and just composed it very quickly in order to fill a little bit more album space. And also like Paranoid, this ended up as the first single from this album. And it was a big hit on the UK singles charts. The lyrics are pure, delightful Dio fantasy. I love lines like circles and rings, dragons and kings, weaving a charm and a spell. It's very Dungeons and Dragons-y. Yeah. Yeah. He has a, a remarkable knack for just saying words. <laughs> would, would that we all have that knack? I've heard you talk. You don't make any sense at all. Yeah, it's yeah, kind of hidden home, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> now you see. Uh, <laughs> I don't force people to listen to me, though. <laughs> That's fair. I cannot hear a lyric like that and not see Dio flashing the devil horns. Now, incidentally... The iconic devil horns gesture is one that is very much originally associated in heavy metal with one Ronnie James Dio. He did not invent it. Actually, he learned it from his Italian grandmother who used it to ward off the evil eye. However, it was Dio who was definitely the most responsible person for popularizing this hand gesture in metal. John, do you know how to do a proper devil horn salute? Or? I, I was just genuinely going to ask you, is the, is the correct <laughs> way to do it with the thumb out or in? 
All right, so John is one of those dummies who can't distinguish devil horns from the sign language for I love you. Is that is that fair? I didn't know. It I was. love you? Is this this is I love you? Yeah. Just just this? Yeah. So the devil so this for those of you who are not watching this, which is everybody besides John and I. <laughs> this is a great <laughs> both of us just standing here with our hands up. <laughs> this audio medium. It's visibly, it's quite a beautiful thing to behold. So yes, so John, the crucial thing for the devil horn, you put your thumb on top of your middle finger and your index finger, and if you listen to crazy Christian types, they will tell you that this then gives you three sixes. Six, six, six. Which is total, complete nonsense. Like a coincidence. The it's the, the, it's like backwards, you have to like flip it over. See? With your thumb. That's fucking stupid. <laughs> yes. C crazy Christians tend to be idiots. So, I salute all our listeners with two devil horns. Or is that four devil horns? I guess it's four devil horns. Shut up, John. And also the I love you. Because John and I love you all. And also, we assume, quite reasonably, I think, that all our listeners are passionate and devoted Satanists. No? Does that seem reasonable? I, I don't know. Good. Anywho, Heaven and Hell was released on April 21st, 1980. It went platinum in the U.S., making it all the way to number 28 on the American charts, and gold in the U.K., making it all the way to number 9 across the pond. By way of comparison, Never Say Die, that final album of the Aussie era, only made it to number 69 in the U.S. and number 12 in the U.K. So Sabbath 2.0 was bigger in 1980 than Sabbath 1.0 had been in a number of years. I think that Heaven and Hell is a truly incredible album and definitively proved that the band would and could move on without Ozzy. That said, I will acknowledge that this is not quite a perfect album and that there are a couple of weaker tracks here and there. Frankly, Wishing Well and Walk Away on side two, they feel a bit like high quality filler to me. That said, I do think the rest of the material on Heaven and Hell is every bit as strong as anything Sabbath did with Ozzy, and I most particularly think songs like the title track and Children of the Sea are jaw-droppingly great. John, do you remember Children of the Sea from your mix? It's that, like, gradually building epic, it starts slow, and Ronnie's voice keeps getting bigger and bigger, and it eventually, like, just becomes heavy and That's grinding. not what he Heaven and Hell did? That was kind of what Heaven and Hell did, but... Differently. Mm. <sighs> so, I think you just like a very specific style of songwriting. Yeah, good songs. Yeah, slow. Oh, you're such an idiot. I like fast songs. I'm like a speed freak. So, let's just be clear here. Based on what you've heard thus far, are you buying what Dio era Sabbath is selling? No. All right. All right. Well, <laughs> this, uh, this is why we're looking for a new co-host. <laughs> <laughs> Please email applications <laughs> too. <laughs> Heavy Metal 101 podcast at what are we Gmail? We're Gmail. Yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> Shut up. All right. So the final result of all the aforementioned lineup turmoil was that this album featured just the classic Black Sabbath lineup, but with Dio replacing Ozzy. Alas, that was not to last very long. Drummer Bill Ward was very much at the height of his issues with alcoholism during this period, and apparently he doesn't remember much about making the album. I think his drumming is noticeably checked out on this album compared to earlier work. He just doesn't seem as fully engaged on a number of these tracks as he normally did with Sabbath. This lack of engagement did eventually lead to his departure from the band. So, as the story goes, right in the middle of the Heaven and Hell tour, Ward basically, just a la Ozzy, disappeared. This was apparently something Black Sabbath members were doing in those days. Apparently, Ward called Dio up on the phone and said, quote, I'm off then, Ron. And then he just left. Left wow. the tour, was gone. I love that. Yeah, great, great. He was quickly replaced for the rest of the tour and on the amazing follow-up album, Mob Rules, by the fabulous drummer, Vinnie Apice. For the record, I think that Vinny was aesthetically a much better drumming fit for this era of Sabbath than Bill Ward, much as I adore Bill Ward's drumming. Go Sabbath! Uh, see, between firing Ozzy, Butler's comings and goings, and Ward's eventually wandering off, the band was definitely a total clusterfuck at this time. Yet, a creatively reinvigorated Tony and his brilliant new partner in crime, Dio, had more than enough vim and vigor to keep Black Sabbath firing on all, all cylinders at least for a few more years. 
So basically, in 1980, Black Sabbath were busily and successfully reasserting themselves as both the mighty father figures of heavy metal and the father figures of this supposed new wave of British heavy metal and as a fresh-sounding band with a contemporary artistic relevance for a new decade, which is not so shabby. Meanwhile, you might be wondering what all was happening in the life of one John Michael Ozzy Osbourne, a.k.a. the Prince of Darkness, a.k.a. the Godfather of Metal, a.k.a. a swell guy who likes pets, following his traumatic dismissal from Black Sabbath. John, I imagine you were wondering that? I was so concerned about his well-being. We just left Ozzy languishing, having just been fired from his job. That's a hard experience. Well, have I got a story for you. We join the tale of Ozzy Osbourne's complete mental break. Is this your NPR voice? Yes. What do you think? It's got kind of a quiet hush. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. All right, so let's start with a couple of quotes regarding this period, courtesy of the Prince of Darkness himself. So, John, these I'd like you to read in your very best Aussie voice. My father had died. (laughs) You see how my screams sound the same. All right, read it in your best John reading shit voice. My father had died, my ex-wife threw me out because I was fucking insane, and then my band fired me. (laughs) Now that is a trifecta of misery. Next! I'd be lying if I said I didn't feel betrayed by what happened with Black Sabbath. We were four blokes who'd grown up together a few streets apart. We were like family, like brothers, and firing me for being fucked up was hypocritical bullshit. We were all fucked up. If you're stoned and I'm stoned and you're telling me that I'm fired because I'm stoned, how can that be? Because I'm slightly more stoned than you are? All right. Well, that was a beautiful recitation of the poetic musings of Ozzy Osbourne. Great stuff. So Ozzy was indeed a complete and utter mess following his dismissal from Sabbath. As the legend goes, manager Don Arden checked Ozzy into Le Park Hotel in West Hollywood, where he holed up for approximately three months, which were spent boozing, doing oodles of drugs, and getting both pizza and groupies brought in via delivery. Doesn't sound so bad, right? Sounds great. Yeah, I could probably use three months like that. Now, making her second cameo of this episode was our good pal Sharon Arden, who, I'll remind you, was Don's daughter and Ozzy's future bride, who finally got Ozzy out of his stupor. According to Sharon, quote, he looked awful. He hadn't shaved in weeks. His clothes were covered in food, and he smelled terrible. So this was Ozzy in the summer of 1979, and I imagine this is basically like John on a typical Sunday morning, no? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Sharon told Ozzy that he simply had to get his shit together, assemble a band, and rebuild his life and career. And that, my friends, is just what he did. Now, the thing about Ozzy is that while he is wildly charismatic and possessed of a unique and really quite nifty singing voice, he has always needed to rely on the musical kindnesses of others over the course of his career. In Sabbath, it was Tony Iommi writing the music and Geezer Butler writing the lyrics. So Ozzy's first task, after I imagine a shave and a lengthy shower, would be to find new musicians who could similarly support him in his solo career. Not so long after Sharon's crucial intercession, Ozzy would meet someone who would utterly change the trajectory of his life and career. Enter the late, great Randy Rhodes! So, John, what, if anything, do you know about Randy Rhodes? Uh, does he have anything to do with the instrument? The, you mean like the electric piano? Mm-hmm. You're a fucking idiot. Then no, I don't know anything <laughs> oh about God. Randy Rhodes. <laughs> <laughs> Again, send your applications to Heavy Metal 101 Podcast. Oh, God. All right, so... After Eddie Van Halen, Randy Rhodes was the next in this new generation of incredibly revered heavy metal guitar gods. Randall William Rhodes was born on December 6, 1956, and was just 23 years old when he met Ozzy Osbourne. He'd already been one of the founding members of an early and important Los Angeles-based glam metal band that we'll get to in a few episodes, Quiet Riot. Rhodes came from a classical music background. His mother was a pianist, and interestingly, also a cornetist, who found and ran the Musonia School of Music in North Hollywood. 
Randy started taking classical guitar lessons there as a child, but after excelling beyond the level where his teacher felt able to continue offering him lessons, Randy began teaching at the school himself. Wow. Yeah, talented dude. Randy Rhodes has long been legendary for his very neoclassical approach to electric guitar virtuosity, and his technique even rivals the abilities of the mighty Eddie Van Halen. With Ozzy in Los Angeles attempting to put together a new band, Rhodes decided to audition and consider leaving Quiet Riot. As legend has it, he basically had just plugged in and started his warming up exercises when he very, very fucked up Ozzy, stumbled in, and just told him that he got the gig. Love it. Yeah, this actually would prove to be an excellent decision. Now, I hate to bring things down when we've just hardly met our cast of characters, but alas, I must. Randy Rhodes' extraordinary performance on Ozzy's first two solo albums certainly has secured him a place in the pantheon of legendary guitarists, but his still young career was tragically cut short when he died in a plane crash on March 19, 1982. And the story is heartbreakingly stupid and profoundly sad. So the band was on tour in Florida and had stopped overnight because the tour bus air conditioning was malfunctioning and they needed to get it fixed. The property they stopped on just happened to be an airstrip and there were a bunch of small planes. And while Ozzy and some of the other band members were sleeping, the bus driver, who happened to also have a pilot's license, convinced some of those who were awake to take a joyride on one of the planes. Despite having an intense fear of flying, Rhodes decided to give it a try. And once they were in the air, the pilot thought it would be funny to buzz the tour bus on the ground and freak out the people who were sleeping inside. Alas, he misjudged the distance, the plane's wing clipped the tour bus, and the plane crashed and killed everyone on board, including the just 25-year-old Randy Rhodes. Pretty fucking awful, no? Yep. Yeah, it's a terrible, terrible story. One of the, one of the really great musical tragedies. Right up there with La Bamba. Right up there with La Bamba. It's even stupider. La Bamba was just a plane crash, yeah. not people being dumb. Randy Rhodes was one of our all-time great musicians and apparently also one of the really nice people in heavy metal. People have nothing but good things to say about him as a person. And this was just a senseless and terrible tragedy. Okay, now that we're all suitably depressed, let's rewind back to late 1979 and happier times. John, rewind noises. Perfect. So Ozzy was continuing to assemble his new band. It was October of that year at a club in London when Ozzy first met an Australian bassist who had just recently left the band Rainbow. They keep coming up. Bob Daisley. Yeah, because people want to get out of the band named Rainbow. Everybody wants out of Rainbow. That's fair. Bob Daisley is the real unsung hero of this story, as he is not only a fabulous and underappreciated bassist, but he was also the principal songwriter and lyricist who truly steered the ship, artistically, on Ozzy's first two solo albums. So it would be primarily Daisley and Rhodes who would do all the songwriting for what would become Blizzard of Oz, with Ozzy contributing bits and pieces of lyrics and vocal melodies in much the same sporadic way he had in Black Sabbath. I should also probably mention that at this time, this project was actually intended to be a band called Blizzard of Oz, That's not a terrible. solo project. Yeah, <laughs> more dark stories. It was only at the absolute last minute the record label pulled a bait and switch and released the album as an Ozzy Osbourne album called Blizzard of Oz rather than as the self-titled debut of a band called Blizzard of Oz. So you can probably imagine Daisley and Rhodes were less than thrilled by that. I don't know. What's worse? Being on an Ozzy Osbourne album or being a part of a band called Blizzard of Oz? I would be very happy to be involved with either of those things. Okay. Yeah. So, look, frankly, there's just a lot of ugly of this sort in the history of both Black Sabbath and Ozzy's solo career. A lot of people like to blame these things on Sharon Osbourne. I don't know what degree it's her, what degree it's the others involved, but I, I love it not. The music that these people made was incredible, but I'm not so sure if they were all incredible people, at least in terms of the business of making music. Nearly all the material had already been written when former Uriah Heep drummer Lee Kerslake joined up with the gang. Kerslake's only writing credit was for track number eight, No Bone Movies, which is, frankly, uh, I would say probably the weakest tune on the album, but actually, I do think it was nice that the band really wanted to make sure that Kerslake would have at least one writing credit, so, it's not all people being sucky all the time, right? 
It's just mostly people being sucky. Yes, exactly. Also featured on this album would be Don Airy on the keyboards, who you might recall as the pianist on that not-so-classic Sabbath track, Air Dance, we had the pleasure of listening to last season. Do you remember that one? I do. That was great. And so, with this crack team at last assembled and the music written, Ozzy Osbourne and his super friends went into Ridge Farm Studio in the delightful-looking English village of Rusper from March 22nd through April 19th of 1980 to record what many consider to be one of the greatest heavy metal albums of all time, Blizzard of Oz. John, I know what you're going to say. Ask the question anyway. You can't possibly tell me you didn't enjoy the material from this album that was on your playlist. I have to say, my biggest takeaway from listening to this was that Crazy Train is not nearly as good a song as I thought it was. It's such a great song! It is a great first opening minute. It's an incredible opening riff. And then it's sort of fine. You're a bad man, John. I adore this album. Everybody adores this album, except apparently for John. Like many children of the 1980s, I actually first became acquainted with Ozzy Osbourne through his solo work. It was only later that I came to know Black Sabbath. And this music really was, in many respects, the soundtrack of my youth. But wait! We can't talk of this any further without a bit of assigned listening. That would be Poppycock! There are a bunch of stone classics herein, but the song that to me is Ozzy at his very most Ozzy has got to be the darkly majestic opener to side two, Mr. Crowley. John, do you know who Mr. Crowley was? Oh, it's the character from Supernatural, right? <sighs> Jesus Christ. And that character wasn't you named set me after up for that. I did. I knew you were going to say something stupid. <laughs> I, I you, just, you can just assume up. that about any question you ask it's me. It's so true. That's why I don't have this job anymore. <laughs> well, we haven't, we haven't received our applications yet. So just be ready to leave at any time. We're in my house. <laughs> I stand by what I said. All right, so Alistair Crowley was an English occultist who lived from 1875 to 1947. Jimmy Page famously bought Crowley's spooky old English manor in the 1970s, and there's always been this love and fascination amongst hard rock and heavy metal peoples for Crowley's particular brand of gothic weirdness. Okay, a few things to listen for on this track. First off, the organ intro is amazing for which we can thank Don Airy, who composed the entire intro without <gasps> receiving any credit. No writing credit. I'd also point to the general aura of sort of decrepit gothicism on this piece. It brings to mind the same sort of imagery conveyed by the album cover, which we'll look at in a sec, or perhaps classic Hammer Horror from England. This song is the perfect distillation of Ozzy's image and sound from his solo career. Lastly, I'd ask the listeners to really carefully listen to Randy Rhodes' guitar playing, and particularly his two magnificent solos in this song. He is exquisitely tuneful and melodic, and also highly virtuosic. The two solos in this song are him at his very best. John, let's get our magic with a CK on and jam out to some Mr. Crowd. John, tell me everything. You adored that, right? I mean, the guitar playing was good. It's really good. Yeah. Right? Yeah. He's a hell of a guitarist. Look, there are lots of facets to solo Ozzy Osbourne, but I think that this sort of hammer horror gothicism found in Mr. Crowley, it's him at his very bestest. This is most definitely my jam, more so than, say, Crazy Train and some of those poppier tunes. Okay, we need to start thinking about wrapping up this mammoth double episode part one. So let's briefly consider a bit more background detail on Blizzard of Oz, then we'll pack it in so John can have a nice nap before we return for part the second. I've noted the gothicism in both the music and on the album cover, so let's take a gander at that. John, can you quickly describe what you see here on this album cover? All right. Got a lot more color than usual. Mm -hmm. We appear to be in some sort of a room, high ceilings, wood floor, and there's an individual holding a cross. It looks like one of those California-style monasteries to me. I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. So we got an individual, long black hair. I'll get there. Oh, oh. They're wearing white and some sort of a weird vest. They it's have. Like a cape, they right? have a cape. Yeah, it's just kind of weird looking. Scary. It's not remotely scary. <laughs> I want to make it very clear. As someone who is relatively easily scared, this is not remotely scary. It's just a weird guy with long hair it's on the floor. 
Is it? Yeah. It's hard to tell. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there's a skull in the background. Oh, my God. Sorry, that's scary. Did that scare you? I was very scary. The, the partially covered up skull? <laughs> I was frightened. Look, this cover is just begging to mortify permed 80s suburban mothers and also to thrill their children. It's got crosses and skulls and long-haired caped figures. It's, it's just, just like, really? This was very scandalous. Oh, it's going to get more scandalous. Let's 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 see what happened with Ozzy Osbourne in the '80s. So it's funny now, since Ozzy has long since become such a warm, fuzzy, universally beloved icon. But he really was pretty freaking scary and unpredictable back in the early '80s. He was also blitzed out of his goddamn mind for most of that decade, which probably has something to do with it. So let me just offer up a very quick list of Ozzy Osbourne's early '80s cultural milestones. On March 27, 1981, at a business meeting with his record label, a very drunk Ozzy was supposed to theatrically release three doves at the conclusion of a speech, instead bit the heads off of two of them and spat them onto the table. On January 20, 1982, at a concert in Des Moines, somebody threw a dead bat onto the stage. Ozzy, as any normal person would do, grabbed it and proceeded to bite the head off of it. Apparently biting heads off animals was something that Ozzy was into at the time. According to Ozzy, quote, My mouth was instantly full of this warm, gloopy liquid with the worst aftertaste you could ever imagine. I could feel it staining my teeth and running down my chin. Wow. When the concert was over, Ozzy had to be rushed to a local hospital for rabies shots. Alright, we're going to do one more. Just one more. On February 19th, 1982, a drunk Ozzy, noticing a theme here, apparently wearing one of Sharon's dresses, was stumbling around in downtown San Antonio in the wee hours of the morning looking for a place to pee. The place he eventually chose was a sacred statue immediately across from the Alamo, which commemorated those who had died there. Ozzy was arrested and charged with public intoxication and was actually banned from playing in San Antonio until 1992. So, I'd say that by this point, the mythos of Ozzy Osbourne as a wild and crazy guy was pretty well established, no? Yeah, I mean, that, that bat story is kind of iconic, but also yeah. deeply horrifying. <laughs> yeah, it's unpleasant. All right, fast facts before we go. Blizzard of Oz was released in the UK on September 20th, 1980. It wasn't actually released in the US until 1981 on March 27th. Mr. Crowley was the second Diddy, but the first was that track called Crazy Train. John, I'm assuming you'd heard Crazy, Crazy yeah. Train before. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you just decided yeah. it's less good than you, you thought. Yeah, I mean, no one hears anything other than the opening riff in the broader social context of the world. And turns out the body of the song is kind of shit. Perfect. It does feature the use of a vibra slap. That's pretty fun. That is, yeah, okay. Yeah, heavy metal vibra slap. There are just nine songs on Blizzard of Oz, and one of those, the lovely nylon-stringed acoustic instrumental D, is just 50 seconds long. Does it count as a song? Yeah, it's not really. It's very pretty, though. Other stone classics on this album include the wonderful opener, I Don't Know, and the wildly controversial side one closer, Suicide Solution. For the record, this song's only controversial because people are wildly and unforgivably stupid. John, could you just read us the opening verse of Suicide Solution? Wine is fine, but whiskey's quicker. Suicide is slow with liquor. Take a bottle, drown your sorrows, then it floods away tomorrow's away tomorrow's. And John, what pray tell do you think the suicide solution in question might possibly be? Drinking? It is indeed alcohol. And yet, in 1986, Ozzy and his record label were sued by the parents of a teenager who killed himself while apparently listening to this album. It was on his turntable. Uh, under the assumption that the song's suicide solution caused their otherwise happy, well-adjusted child to commit suicide. Does it seem reasonable to you? Uh, no. 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 I assume they were able to beat that, that charge. Uh, yes. Thankfully, the lawsuit was eventually dismissed. Anyhow, there are no bad songs on Blizzard of Oz, but I must confess to finding the third track, the ballad Goodbye to Romance, a wee bit too schmaltzy for my taste. It's the one song on the album that really sounds a bit pre-80s dated to me. As I mentioned before, No Bone Movies on side two is, is fun. It's a fun track, but it's quite forgettable. Everything else, however, really is pretty extraordinary, and this was a shockingly wonderful solo debut from a dude who was probably on death's door pretty consistently at this point in his life. Much, much credit is due to Bob Daisley and Randy Rhodes for making all of it work so well. 
The world stood up and took notice, and while Heaven and Hell was a hit, Blizzard of Oz was a mega hit, selling over 6 million copies worldwide. That's a lot of copies for a dude who is running around biting the heads off of random helpless creatures, no? Some might argue too many copies. Hmm, that's been argued, I think. So that's Ozzy's debut as a solo artist, and I say go team! I think it's great that both the newfangled Black Sabbath and Ozzy's new lease on life both got off to such an incredible start in 1980. Considering where all those people had been back in 1978 when Never Say Die was released, I think this is a pretty amazing comeback and an inspirational story. John, are you inspired by the way these wizened older artists began this new decade achieving these monumental artistic heights? I'm so inspired. No. I think I'm going to go and try to play more, better music. You, you don't care about anyone or anything, do you? No. Yeah. Never have, never will. Alrighty then. Let's wrap up part one so I can go pee on something of national import before we record part two. Tell the fancy folk how to reach us with questions, comments, or thoughts. As we mentioned, you can reach us via email at heavymetal101podcast.gmail.com. Please send your co-host applications there. Uh, what, what do they need to send in to apply? I think that they should write fuck John in the header. Wow. And then just, I don't know, send poetry? I was going to say 20 bucks. <laughs> 20 bucks will also do. Yes. You can leave us a voice message at anchor.fm forward slash heavymetal101podcast, or you can find us on social media through Facebook at heavymetal101podcast, Twitter at heavymetal underscore 101, or Instagram at heavymetal101podcast. So, John, I feel like we should end part one like a Marvel movie with one of those post-credit type scenes. Should we do that? Sure. Ooh, did All we right. do the credits? Well, there'll be credits. Okay. Well, there'll be music. So the credits are happening? No, they're not happening yet. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. The listener is just going to have to wait until after the theme music and see. Meanwhile, everybody, please don't forget to rate and review us anywhere you like to listen. We love you all bunches. Later. You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go.